0: Well, it's pretty safe to say that my wife of coming up on 25 years of marriage, which we just celebrated in our, went to a mountain retreat and uh, I'm just, I don't know how I must have given her drugs or something to coerce her up to the altar, but she did. Uh, But I love you, honey. And uh, 25 years, it's amazing. I think marriages should be celebrated, especially in this culture. But anyway, it's pretty safe to say that my wife Tara has a green thumb, and that appendage was inherited from my mother-in-law, Louise, and who I think has two green thumbs. She could be in the middle of Walmart and overhear a conversation about how someone needs to weed eat their garden. Louise would literally walk over and say something to the effect of, where do you live? I'll run over there and get started right away. Now, one of the most dangerous places for my wife to be is Home Depot. When your wife knows where each section is and knows every cubby, every tool, every bolt, every belt, and every can of paint are, it can be like Lady Gaga having a run at Liberace's wardrobe. (laughs) With the 13 acres we just bought out in Egypt, South Carolina... And as we were perusing Home Depot, we briefly discussed the idea of having a tiller out of the property. Tillers look like lawnmowers, but in place of horizontal blades that cut grass, they, uh, tillers have vertical blades that cut and turn up the soil. And in a word, they till. Now, according to Genesis 2.15, God put man in the garden to till it and to keep it. Till is a reasonable translation of the Hebrew verb uh, verb avad in this context. To till means to break up, plow, or turn up the soil before planting. Tilling enables hard ground to accept seeds. It aerates the soil that has been tamped down. It can help fertilizer to be absorbed into the dirt prior to planting. Tilling isn't planting seeds, caring for young plants, or harvesting. Rather, it's preparing the soil for fruitfulness that is to come. And that's what this chapter of Proverbs is all about. Tilling the soil tilling the soil uh, of the heart so that wisdom in your life can grow. Remember, this is a conversation that Solomon is having with his own son over a lifetime of lessons learned. Ecclesiastes tells us that Solomon tried everything in his life and nothing happened worked. He tried wealth, materialism, knowledge, sex, power, fame, notoriety, and nothing satisfied him. Nothing filled his heart with satisfaction and fulfillment. In fact, the best he could do with his life under this, under the sun here, is he says this in Ecclesiastes 2:24. He says nothing is better for a man than to eat and drink and enjoy his work. I have also seen that this is from the hand of God. The best we can do here is simply enjoy what we do and enjoy the food that God has given us. I mean, come on, people. Is there anything better than some of Kratz's gumbo around a campfire with all of our friends? I don't know if you could get any richer than that. So... Chapters 1 and 2, Solomon tells, us, tells his son the why of wisdom. But here in chapter 3, he begins to tell him the how of wisdom. Proverbs 3 is the home depot of wisdom. It is the tool shed of wisdom. It is the application of wisdom and why it's so important that we till our hearts with it so that our life in Christ can grow. So by way of review, what is wisdom? Well, wisdom, simply put, is the application of facts and knowledge. Knowing is not enough. It's just, uh, it's what you do with what you know that counts. That's wisdom. Knowledge isn't just saying something, but wisdom is actually having something to say. Knowledge is knowing stuff. Wisdom is doing the stuff with which you know. Wisdom is also not an idea, it's not a concept or a pithy Zen statement. Wisdom is actually, get this, a person. It's the person of Jesus Christ. So if you want to be wise, you can't learn it just by reading books or observing your natural surroundings. It starts with a healthy respect and fear of God. Proverbs 1.7 says that wisdom starts there. You can't get it any other way. If you truly want to be wise and successful, God's version of success, then you have to do it by fearing God. We end up getting a bee in our bonnet, a good idea in our heads, and we begin to pursue it according to the world's ways and methods. It'll never work. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians one twenty-five. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. If you want to know what wisdom is, then you get to know Jesus in a personal, intimate way. That is true wisdom. And you simply ask him by faith through his finished work on the cross for you. For it says in 1 Corinthians 130 and 31, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. Did you catch that? Christ became wisdom from God for us. That's wisdom. He is wisdom. He is understanding. He embodies the fullness of wisdom. He doesn't just give wisdom. He is wisdom. And the more you spend time with Jesus, the more you know who you really are, the more you understand the deeper things of life and the wiser you become. So my assignment this morning, per that background, is to exposit these two verses. Now look look with me at verse 3 of Proverbs chapter 3. Solomon says, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you bind them around your neck write them on the tablet of your heart excuse me the word used here for steadfast love or some bibles translate as mercy the word here in hebrew is the word hased said. hased said is used in the old testament To define God's covenant love for his people. The Hebrew word for faithfulness is emmet. And no, I'm not talking about the former running back for the Dallas Cowboys. This word emmet means is used to describe God's dependability. His reliability in his care for his people. So here Solomon commands his son to not let steadfast love and faithfulness forsake him. What does he mean by that? Well, the word forsaken can mean to loosen or to leave behind or to abandon. In other words, these are qualities that are already attached to him, to his son. The only way they depart is if his son abandons them. So what is Solomon really saying here? Is he saying that these, that these are qualities that he must constantly perform? I don't think he's saying that at all. In fact, I believe that what Solomon is commanding his son is not to do, but to believe. To believe in God's love and his faithfulness for him based on what God has done and promised. Son, don't abandon or leave behind what God has promised you. Hold on to them tightly Don't let them loosen even a little bit. For when you do, you'll find success in the Lord and with man. So it is with us, brothers and sisters. Jesus never tells us what to do before he first tells us what to believe. In fact, the believing is what fuels the doing. Not the other way around. The trouble for you and I is when we don't trust God or believe in his promises for us, that we face a problem in life and we try, try and decide to fix it ourselves it, and, and things go awry. And the problem is, is that we're not really believing God that he cares for us. We're acting out of insecurity and fear. And there are many examples of this in scripture. In fact, when, whenever you look at the book of Ephesians, it's a six chapter book. Paul spends the first three chapters opening a treasure chest for you. God has done this. He has done this. He has made you his own. He has sealed you to the day of redemption. He has adopted you. He has predestined you. He's made you alive, even though you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Uh, And he just goes on and on and on and on. He has broken down the wall of separation between Gentiles and Jews to make one man. He goes on and on and on for three chapters about what Christ has done. Then when Paul goes on, he says, now in chapter four, now that you know what God has done in Christ, now this is how you live it out. And all of Paul's letters are structured that way. In Genesis 12, God, call, God calls Abraham to an amazing promise that through him, the Lord would bless him, make him a great nation, that all the families of the earth would be blessed. Genesis twelve two and three. Sounds great at the offset, but then God leads Abraham down to Canaan, which is occupied with foreigners. There's no room for him to settle. Excuse me. He spends his time wandering. He must have thought, what the heck am I doing here in Canaan? Have you ever had that thought? Have you ever thought, Lord, what am I doing here in this place in my life? Why have you brought me this way? This doesn't make any sense, especially after this uh, desire that you've birthed in my heart, this vision that you've given me. You brought me here with the intent to bless me, but I don't see any blessings in this place. But I assure you, if you find yourself in this Canaan of sorts, it's exactly where you should be. It is where the Lord is doing his best work in your life. So what happened? So then Abraham encounters a famine. He gets a little nervous. So instead of praying and consulting with the Lord, he takes matters into his own hands and he goes down to Egypt with his wife Sarah in hopes of eking out a living. The Lord never told him to leave Canaan when times got tough. The Lord made a promise to him. So Abraham had a choice to make. Either trust God or trust himself. Abraham chose the latter. He gets to Egypt and immediately hatches a plan out of fear and insecurity for his life and asks Sarah to lie to Pharaoh and say that she is his sister. In other words, it's a technicality. Well, this didn't go over well. And I have to give props to Sarah in the story because she submits to Abraham despite his stupidity. And she shows great faith that the Lord would protect her. So the Lord intervenes and saves Sarah from Pharaoh. And Abraham learns a valuable lesson. He learns to trust God rather than trust himself. And learns that despite the mess he put he and his wife through, that the Lord would would still be faithful to him. God is faithful to himself and his promises. So with that, Abraham goes back to Canaan To the place where he first met with the Lord. And he builds an altar there between Bethel and Ai. And calls on the name of the Lord. The very thing he should have done in the first place when the famine hit. But he goes back to the beginning. Brothers and sisters. Let not God's steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Notice I didn't say don't forsake your love for God and your faithfulness for God, I said, let not God's steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. You might be in a a famine right now. It could be a relationship. It could be finances. It could be a lousy job, a difficult situation. But don't be like Abraham and hatch a plan out of your own doing. Don't take the Egypt route just because the grass looks greener over there. It may be greener, but the water bill's a lot higher. Your good ideas will never work unless the Lord blesses them. Wait on the Lord and trust his faithfulness of promises and he will deliver you. In fact, my dad said something to me years ago that I've always held on to. He said, son, the only thing worse than waiting on the Lord is wishing you had. Brothers and sisters, let not God's steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. But also know that any stupid decision that you or I can make does not mean the Lord is upset with you or he's down on you. How can you disappoint a God who already knows what you're going to do before you do it? It's just an opportunity for him. But God covenanted with you. Remember that. God made promises to you. He will be faithful to protect you and guard you even from your own stupidity. The Lord bound himself at the cross to make you his own despite your performance. Believe in his character and he will see you through. G. Campbell Morgan once said, Waiting for God is not laziness. Waiting for God is not going to sleep. Waiting for God is not the abandonment of effort. Waiting for God means, first, activity under command. Second, readiness for any new command that may come. Third, the ability to do nothing until the command is given. Love that guy. Now on the flip side, we read in Matthew chapter 4 that after the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, the Spirit leads Jesus not to Jerusalem, not to Galilee, not to the biggest synagogue in the area, No, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus to the wilderness to be tested for 40 days and 40 nights with no food. Why? So that Jesus could identify with you and with me. So at the end of the 40 days, when he was at his weakest point, the devil begins three attacks on him. The devil tried to manipulate him into taking matters into his own hands rather than trusting God the Father to take care of him. The devil tried to get Jesus to meet his own needs by his own power by telling him, hey, if you are who you say you are, then I dare you to turn these stones into some Krispy Kreme donuts right now. I mean, look, you've been out here for 40 days with nothing to eat, nothing. If you don't eat soon, you're going to die. And do you really think your father cares about you? I mean, he would have shown up by now if he loves you, right? Don't you think? Jesus has none of it. He says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. Satan, I don't live to satisfy my own physical needs. I live to obey the will of my Father. He will take care of me because he is good. And there is a purpose as to why he hasn't fed me yet. And I trust in his hand that he will feed me when it is his time, Jesus didn't let steadfast love and faithfulness of his father forsake him, did he? He believed that his father was going to care for him. He held them tightly. He relied on God's word. He is God's word. He believed the promises that the father would never leave him or forsake him. But then after Jesus stands up to the enemy and the Bible says in Matthew 4, 11, then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and ministered to him. Did you catch that? Jesus didn't have to make the bread himself. The father sent the angels to feed him. Gave him some angel food cake. Oh, come on. (laughs) Throw me a bone. Brothers and sisters, let the spirit lead you. Even though you seem to be in a wilderness. The Lord is working to such a degree that you are gaining something that is more precious than gold. And that is you're gaining more of Jesus himself. He is creating more of his life in you and through you so that when you come out of that wilderness, you will come out with power and authority of the gospel to minister effectively to those around you. In fact, it says that, uh, In fact, it says in Luke 4.10, after that experience in the wilderness, it says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And in fact, the book of Hebrews says that he learned. Jesus learned obedience through the things in which he suffered. Wait a minute. The Son of God learning obedience? Wow. Why? So he could show us how to live as well. He identified with us. He made himself weak so that in him we could be strong. Don't be so quick to run to the anesthetic. Let him have his way. Let him have his way. And then Solomon says, bind them around your neck. So what does Solomon mean when he says, bind them around your neck? Obviously he's speaking in in an analogy here. Love, mercy, justice, and truth are to become a part of us ingrained in our being it is believing the gospel believing who we are in christ that fuels and propels these virtues within us these virtues should manifest in our outward behavior for all to see as an adornment around us similar to how jewelry is worn we are to bind them around our necks to such a degree that we are on display for all the world around us to see who jesus is and what he has done in us. So what does this adornment look like? Let me illustrate this point through scripture. Please keep your finger here in Proverbs 3. And turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3. Peter says here his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Verse four, by which he has granted to us his very precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So in verse 3 there, Peter establishes the fact that God has provided everything we need to live a life of godliness through the knowledge of Jesus. Now, this knowledge is not just head knowledge. This is experiential knowledge of Jesus himself. Peter goes on to say that Christ has given us precious promises so that we would become partakers of him and his nature. Promises like, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He has sealed you for the day of redemption. He has made you his own child. He is currently preparing a place for you in heaven to be with him forever. He is with you now ordering the affairs of your life for a good end. And then Peter gives a list of things that should be growing spiritually within us. Now, if you look at yourself in this list, you'll see some of these things should be growing in your life, in my life. And in verse 5, Peter says to make every effort to grow in virtue. Now, virtue means moral excellence. Your outward life should continue to grow with the inner life. And then Peter says your knowledge should grow, the knowledge of Jesus and the things about the gospel and your life with him. And then he says self-control should become more evident. Self-control is actually a fruit of the spirit. And the more you cultivate a relationship with Jesus, the more self-control you will have through the Spirit's power. He who is slow to anger, Proverbs 16.32 says, uh, He who is slow to anger is better than mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Wow. Then Peter says, Steadfastness, which is a reliability, becoming a person of your word. To be steady should also grow. You should become more dependable. You grow in integrity. You're willing to stand for truth no matter the cost. And then godliness, then affection, and then finally Peter ends with love. And God is love. And the more you know him, the more you know what it is to truly love. Now, if you look at this list, you might have the same reaction as I do, which is, my, oh, my, do I have a long way to go? But here's the kicker. You ready? For this whole thought Peter is giving us, look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If you lack these adornments in your life, it's for one reason and one reason only you have forgotten the gospel you have forgotten who you really are in jesus christ you lack power in your life because you have gospel amnesia so peter here is not calling us to do anything other than simply believe the gospel and those qualities that he just listed will grow automatically Believe that Jesus has provided for us everything we need in him so we can continue to live with power. If you believe the gospel, you will be morally excellent. If you believe the gospel, you will love like Jesus loves. If you believe the gospel, you will not be focused on yourself. You won't be a me monster. You will be in awe of Christ worshiping him. In awe of him, loving others, He'll, he removed your guilt, your shame, your shortcomings. He removed the sins you haven't even committed yet. He took all of it so that you could be adorned with Jesus for all the world to see. Bob Byrne, formerly with the L.A. County Police Department, tells of how the department would test bulletproof vests and demonstrate to rookie officers their value by placing them on mannequins and then shooting round after round at them. And then they checked to see if any rounds penetrated the vest. Invariably, the vest would pass the test with flying colors. Vernon would then turn to the rookie officers and ask, so who wants to wear it now instead of the mannequin? Some of you here today have forgotten to put on your gospel bulletproof vest. Shots keep coming at you. But you keep believing that those shots are true. And yet Jesus has given you a gospel bulletproof vest to keep those shots from entering your heart. And that's why Solomon says to his son, write them on the tablet of your heart there in Proverbs uh, 3 verse 3. Not only are we to adorn them in our lives as jewels, but we're also to write them on the tablets of our hearts. Love and faithfulness are to be worn like precious jewels in a necklace. Now the neck houses the throat, which in Hebrews, Hebrew thought is the very life of a person. Mercy and truth or faithfulness are to be tied to the throat so that they are literally a part of every person's breath. This is the better explanation and more accurately expresses the intent of this command that Solomon is giving his son. And believers are also to hold on to mercy and faithfulness by writing it on their heart. And you see this idea played out where God instructed the Israelites to tie his commands as symbols upon their wrists and forehead there in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 8. And where God originally inscribed his law on tablets with his finger. By the way, if you go to Revelation 13, the Antichrist is going to make everybody carry a mark where? Where? on the hand and the head, the same place where God told the Hebrews to tie the word of God. The devil is an imitator. He's a counterfeiter. And that's what he tries to do. The binding to the neck and the writing upon the heart express the fact that God desires his commands to be your very life, to be the very heartbeat of your life. Your heart is the place where he truly desires his law to be written. In fact, it says in Hebrews 8:10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. But this shall be a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, says the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it on their hearts. Jeremiah 31, 33. The only way to have God's command written on your heart is to read and to study God's Word. God's Word is life to you. It is your very heartbeat. It is the one book in the world whereby the Spirit of God will speak to you and lead you to life. And the more you get into the Word of God, the more the Word of God will get into you. And I'm really glad that the ladies are having an inductive Bible study, and I think the men should too. (laughs) We'll, We'll talk about that as elders the more refreshment you'll experience, the more insight you'll get about life. In 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr. flew his small airplane from New York City to his family home in Massachusetts for a wedding. On board were his wife, Carolyn, and her sister. Though Kennedy was a licensed pilot, he had not been yet approved for instrument flight, using only instruments to navigate. When their takeoff was delayed until after dark, Kennedy should have waited for daylight or sought a more experienced pilot to help him out. Yet Kennedy took off into the darkness and the plane never reached its destination and all three passengers were killed in the crash. Investigators determined that the crash was likely caused by disorientation from flying over open water at night without any landmarks or a visible horizon. Kennedy's lack of experience may well have led him to trust what he thought he was seeing more than what his instrument panel was telling him. The reality is, brothers and sisters, is that most of you, you just don't sit down and read the scriptures and commune with the Lord. Some of you just assume that you'll navigate your way through life without ever learning to rely On the true instrument, the true instrument. I can't underestimate how important this is. The Holy Scriptures. You can't rely on yourself and your feelings. Your feelings are there to be managed by God. Feelings are a good thing they were given to us by God, but we don't navigate through life by them. When was the last time you just sat and read or even studied? 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You don't sit down and listen to the Lord's voice. If you don't sit down and listen to the Lord's voice, how do you expect to understand or walk through your day-to-day life? Especially in this time we live. But yet he's given us these promises where we can thrive. Brothers and sisters, please, if you don't hear anything that I'm saying in this sermon, hear this, read and study the Bible. God will reward you for it. Now I want to get a little practical before I close here. But what are, what are some ways that you can make your Bible reading more enjoyable? Well, first, come before the Lord humbly. And quiet your heart before him. Remove distractions and get in a quiet place where you can hear him. Shut the door. Second, pray and ask the Holy Spirit to fill you and speak to you. Ask the Spirit to search your heart for anything that may be hindering your prayers. Confess your sins before the Lord, knowing that he is loving and kind. And he'll clear the the brush and the weeds out of the way. Third, When you read the scriptures, put yourself in the story. Don't make yourself the center of the story. That's where Jesus belongs. But put yourself in it and apply those verses to your life. A simple example would be to take the story of Peter walking on the water there in Matthew 14. You and I are Peter in the story. God calls us to come to him in a storm. We step out in faith and we start, start walking toward Jesus in the midst of a storm in our lives. All of a sudden, we, we, we look around and we see powerful winds and waves which represent our circumstances. And we take our eyes off Jesus and our attention is turned to our circumstances rather than the one who is in complete control of our circumstances. We all of a sudden begin to sink. And while we're about to drown in the raging sea of our problems... We cry out for Jesus to save us. And he does. And we don't deserve to be saved, but yet because he's so gracious and kind and he loves us so, he grabs our hand and he pulls us out. And not only that, but he raises us up back next to him. And we walk back to the boat under his power and authority where we experience safety. And we experience valuable lessons that we need to just trust him. So in verse 4 of Proverbs 3, Solomon says, So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So what are the results of simply believing God's faithfulness? Well, Solomon tells us that we'll find favor and success with God and men. Being faithful and living God's command brings two great rewards favor and a good understanding, a name or a reputation for wisdom, both with God and with other people. And as believers, our lives consist of a vertical relationship with God and a horizontal relationship with others. Obeying God's commands makes us successful in both. Now, Joseph in Egypt uh, stands as the greatest Old Testament example of this. And I think that it's worth noting that Joseph didn't have it easy. God was directing his life every step of the way to bring about his glory and Israel's blessing. Joseph was faithful. He continued to believe and act on what God had promised him in that dream. And as a result, whether Joseph was in Potiphar's house, whether he was in prison for a falsely accused crime, whether he was in Pharaoh's court or managing a nation through famine, Joseph simply continued to believe the Lord and act on that. So too with you, brothers and sisters, things may not be going as you had planned. In fact, they may have gone the opposite route, but continue to believe the Lord and act on his promises and you will find favor. Yes, with God and with man. And yes, the Lord Jesus may lead you to uncomfortable places, but only that you'll rely on him so that you will rely on him and not trust completely in your own Uh, wherewithal continue to believe and act and you'll be be rewarded. So what can we conclude with all of this? Our Lord and savior didn't just let steadfast love and faithfulness forsake him. He wore it with humility. He didn't just practice those things, but he is those things and he became wisdom for us because we are neither loving nor faithful nor wise we are fools we are just the opposite and yet with his great love toward us his enemies he not only became wisdom from god when he hung on a tree for you and me he can, he is continually watching over and caring to bring you to a good end you see jesus through his life and death found good success with the father and imputed that to you and me as a gift, so that the Father through Christ sees you as loving and faithful. That is amazing. And that is true wisdom from God. Jesus was devoted to you, so that you can not only be wise, but also experience him. And he will carry you with delight, because he is faithful to himself. What an amazing God we serve. Let's pray.